Welcome back to the Truths and Gratitude podcast. This is Brooke, and this is our Woven series written by Angie Smith. We're diving into this book together for a six-part series to see that the Bible is not just a book with random stories in it, but it's one seamless story. It all goes together. And so we're going to dive into this book during our six-part series, seeing God's love and God's redemption plan played out. So I hope you're ready to dive in. All right, guys, here we are on our very first segment of our Woven series. So we're going to jump right in. We're starting with the very first book of the Bible, which, of course, is Genesis. If you're not very well aware of Genesis, that's totally fine. But in Genesis, it starts with the story of creation, God creating um, everything that we now know as earth and sea and land and animals and sky and heavens, all of that, right, during a seven-day time frame, um, also including that seventh day as rest, the Sabbath, which we will talk about the importance of that and the way that it plays out in culture um, going forward. But also, it also talks about the fall of man. So this is the typical Adam and Eve story. So most of you may know that story. You have Adam, you have Eve. They were charged with basically taking care of the Garden of Eden, taking care of all that there was that God had given them. Not only taking care of it though, but was to enjoy it, to just live in perfection. They, everything was perfect. Everything was good. Um, there was no sickness. There were there was nothing uh, to to really to to complain about. It was this perfect utopia that God had created for them. What I really love that Angie mentions in this book, though, is the fact that God created the first humans, not because he needed humans. He didn't need Adam. He didn't need Eve. Everything was good. In fact, after God had created everything, that's what he said. He looked at everything and he says, man, everything is not just good. It's really good. Um, But he created human beings not because he needed us, but because he wanted us. And I think that's so important to remember is that God is not, is not just this big man upstairs who's like, I'm going to create all the rules and you know, you are so beneath me. But like the fact that like, there is this personal approach to him that he wants us. Like we are chosen by him. Um, and she mentions that he wanted us to, to worship him, right? He wanted us because he, he thought it would be so amazing to share that love and that un- unity that was between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. At growing up a very strong Southern Baptist, um, I always knew the Father, I always knew the Son, but the Holy Spirit, or like they say in the South, the Holy Ghost, um, that was one that we didn't talk about very much. Um, people get a little wigged out sometimes when we talk about the Holy Spirit, but I'm hoping as we go through this study that you'll be able to get a better understanding if that is you. But again, we come back to the fact that God created Adam, God created Eve for each other. Um, and I just think it's so, so awesome that God wanted us. And the thing about the garden was everything was freely available to them. They had access over everything. They had dominion over everything. They were there to enjoy their time. If you're not well aware of this, they also had a very deep um, connection and a deep relationship with God. It, it talks about in scriptures about how, um, how Adam and Eve spent time with God um, in conversation and walks through the garden 
there was this deep relationship that they had together. Um, and what I love that Angie says is that the story of creation and the story of how things were set in the Garden of Eden and at the very beginning really shows God's standard for how he wanted things and how he wants things when he redeems everything back to the way that it's supposed to be. Everything was good. Everything is perfect. Um, we are in a deep relationship and in community and in conversation with God. And, and so God is not so far fetched that we can't be close to him. And so it really sets the standard for how, um, how things are supposed to be. And I love how Angie says that it's not just a story. It's a promise. It's a promise for what is to come. So one thing that um, she goes on to mention is just what comes to mind? What comes to our minds when we think of God? Do we think that God is so far off that we can't have a close relationship with him? Um, Or do you see him as loving and trustworthy? One thing that popped up to my realization over the last year or so is uh, I remember going to counseling and um, my counselor had mentioned to me that, you know, typically sometimes people have a really hard time if they've had a really hard relationship or have not had a relationship at all with their earthly father. Sometimes they have a really hard time connecting and trying to have a relationship with God as their spiritual father. Um, and so I just want you to think about that for just a second. Maybe you have had issues with parents. Maybe um, it's hard for you when someone says, God the Father. You know, we look to him as we would our earthly fathers. Um, If that is you and you've had a hard time with that, I'm right there with you. Um, I've had a hard relationship with my own personal dad. And so um, it's been hard to look to God as like this earthly, or excuse me, not an earthly, but a spiritual father, having that deep connection. But she does say, what comes to mind when you think of God? Um, Because the way that it was supposed to be was they were supposed to be in have a deep connection and deep relationship with God. So here they are, they're in the garden full of trees. They have everything that they are, that they would love to have. I mean, think about it. They, they have everything at, um, at their hand. They have access to, to anything that they possibly need, but God just tells them, Hey, there's just, you can enjoy everything except there's just one. This one particular tree, which was called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So you have the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, but you also have this tree of knowledge of good and evil. And it says, if I can flip to my Bible here, Genesis chapter 2, chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, God commanded the man. So this is before Eve has even come to the scene here. God commanded the man, you can eat from any tree in the garden except from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from it. The moment you eat from that tree, you're dead. So, of course, they did not physically die. I mean, much later on they did. But he's talking more of a spiritual death for sure. And then also, you know, death is entered into the world. Okay, so Adam and Eve were never supposed to experience death. Um, But yet... That is brought on by them completely disobeying what God had commanded them to do. In fact, when they make this choice, um, now I know Eve gets like a bad rep all the time, but they both had a choice. They both had free will here. And when the enemy comes and he deceives Eve, he says, you won't die. God knows that the moment you eat from that tree, you'll see what's really going on. You'll be just like God, knowing everything ranging all the way from good to evil. And it later goes on to say that they really did. They really did see what was going on. They saw themselves naked and they 
begin to see sin enter into the world. They also had to deal with repercussions of Eve finding out that there would be pains in childbirth um, and giving birth to your babies in pain. And all of these things, um, these repercussions have come because they have chosen to to basically not follow what God had told them to do. And so in that moment, Adam and Eve realized that they, well, before this, as soon as they ate from that tree, they quickly realized that they were both naked and they immediately felt shame for that. Um, which was one interesting thing because whenever, before they had made that choice, uh, verse 25 in chapter two, it says the two of them, the man and his wife were naked, but they felt no shame. Um, and so you really see here that like they, they were in this mindset of like no shame with their bodies, no shame with one another, um, no issues there. And then the minute that they experienced the fruit from the knowledge of, um, good and evil, they immediately know and see their nakedness and they feel shame and they have all these negative repercussions that come with that. And what I really love though, is even even like, even though they fell into what the enemy had said, right. And, and not to mention like the enemy is basically telling them like, Hey, you can become like your own God, you know, like you can be just like God. And I think that we all struggle with this. We all struggle with the fact that we make ourselves little G gods all the time. And and I've mentioned this before that we have that worship bone in our body, but what tends to happen is we begin to worship other things, money, status, um, success ourselves. That's a huge one. It's all about me, me, me. Um, but the enemy loves to twist how we view God. So automatically Satan is like, Hey, can you really trust and believe like what God has said? I mean, he told you not to do this one thing, but I mean, certainly you will not die. Like, come on. So he's automatically twisting how we view God. But I mean, he did, he did speak some truth. I mean, the enemy said, you know, once you eat from it, you'll see what's really going on. And they did. They saw exactly what was going on. They knew good and evil. But the fact is, is that the enemy said, you'll be just like God knowing everything, ranging all the way from good to evil. So yeah, we do get this view of what evil is like, but we are in no way um, a God ourselves. So Satan really twists how we view God. And, um, and so that is the enemy's tactic is, is basically um, asking Eve to explore her truth you know what is it that you think and what is best for your life you know like you can make your own decisions in this life and he's totally right and that applies to us today we can we can live our lives um however we want um but there are repercussions that come with that there are consequences that come with that and so there was the consequence of shame and sin and evil entering the world and um and what's awesome is God's first words that were recorded in the Bible after the fall of man. So immediately they make this decision, they make this choice. There is that free will there that is their free choice for them. And immediately God asks them the very next verse, because it starts in chapter three, verse eight, um, Adam and Eve, they've, they saw what was really going on. They saw that they were naked. They felt shame and they sewed fig leaves together as makeshift clothes for themselves. And when they heard the sound of God strolling in the garden in the evening breeze, cause you gotta think they had this, 
this routine where they met with God um, in the garden. It says the man and his wife, Adam and Eve, they hid in the trees of the garden. They hid from God. So here they are hiding from God who knows everything, who knows um, who knows everything about our lives. He knows where we are. He knows what our thoughts. And the very first recorded words in verse 9, it says God called to the man. So he's calling to Adam first, right? Where are you? And it's not that God didn't know where they were. God knew very well where Adam and Eve were, even though they're in their hiding. And I just want you to let that sink in for a minute. Like what, what thick leaves are you hiding behind? What things, what, what things cause you shame where you're like, I'm hiding behind this thing. But the truth of the matter is, is that God knows every component of our lives. He knows where we are. He knows our thoughts. He knows everything. And so it's not necessarily, and I love how Angie mentions this. It's not necessarily God is asking where you are physically, where are you hiding? But he is asking, where are you in relationship to me? Where do you stand? Because that is what the enemy used to twist for Eve, which was where, what is your standing with God? Like who comes first? Is it what God says or is it what you say? Where are you with God? And he allowed that moment for Eve to have free will to question that and to make a choice, um, basically in regards to her answer. But he then meets them and says, where are you? Where are you in relationship to me? And I love that because, you know, here you have the God of the universe, the God who's made all of creation, who's made human beings, who is, who's all powerful, right? And this God doesn't come thundering down from the sky, lightning bolts, anger, you know, trembling the whole earth. Like, I'm so disappointed in you. How dare you make this choice? How dare you go against, you know, what I say? It's not this like huge, like dramatic um, thing that we would see like in the movies, especially with like the mythological gods like Zeus and like all of them like come pounding down on people because they've made this horrible decision. But yet he comes in this very gentle um, almost like a parent coming to them and says, where are you? Like, wh- where are you with me? And in a very gentle, loving way, um, trying once again to have that personal connection with them. You know, it's not like just hell instruction coming forth, but it is like, Hey, let's have a chat here. Where are you with me? And Adam's, uh, response, he says, verse 10, he says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid. And I think what I, what sticks out to me in this verse is the fact that I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. Like they had been in the garden with God all along the whole time and they had never felt any fear of God. Like there was a respect of God, but there was not like a, a, a this nervousness, this, this fear and being scared of God and how he was going to react to them. And so he hid And God said, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from that tree I told you not to eat from? And Adam, of course, he says, the one you gave me as a companion, she gave me fruit from the tree. And yes, I ate it. And I love how Adam's like, she told me to do it. (laughs) You know, but the thing is, is like both of them had free will. Both of them had a choice that they could make. And I've heard the question asked before, and I've asked this several times before too, like, Hey, you know, why is it that God would even put that tree in that garden in the first place? Like why, you know, why would he even, you know, set them up like that? You know, like if they couldn't have it, then why in the world would he even allow it to be there? 
And I've heard it phrased before is the fact that God gives us free will. God is not going to force us to stay in relationship with him. He's not going to force us to love him. He is not going to, you know, um, you know, basically brainwash us into, into what he wants. We have free will. We have free choice. God wants us to love him. God wants us to worship him. God wants us to obey him. And if, if that free will wasn't there, is that truly true love? You know, like just think about, I can think about relationships that have been in the past and like, I, I couldn't force those people to love me. You know, if, if, um, if I forced them to love me, then then is that really, is that really true love? Is that really allowing that person to fall in love with you? And so God gives them that free will. One thing that Angie points out is the difference between, um, consequence and condemnation and understanding the difference. And, um, and so this is a consequence, like God is not coming down and condemning them to hell, you know, but he is telling them like, Hey, this is what I told you. And here's the consequence for it. So before we move on to the consequence, God swoops in and he finds a way to make things better. And first, the first thing he addresses is their nakedness. And I love how God came down and he spent time with them in order to fix this problem. Like it wasn't like, it wasn't like he took a long time to decide what needed to happen. They go, he makes them real clothes. Like obviously they haven't done a good job with the fig trees. They're like hanging off of the threads. Okay. And God finds a way to say, Hey, let's, let's figure out how we can, how we can make this. In fact, it says, uh, verse three, I'm sorry, chapter three, verse 21 in Genesis, it says, God made leather clothing for Adam and his wife and he dressed them. And I just love that, how God took that time to, to be with them there in that moment and to help them out. And he takes the time to create clothing for them and to dress them so that they aren't ashamed of their nakedness so that he can help cover up the mistake that they made. And I just, I think that that there's something so sweet about that. The fact that even though he was angry with them, even though he was disappointed and even though they did something, they made a choice that really caused just a huge effect from that point forward, God still took the time to be there with them in such a gentle way. And so I really, I really think that's awesome. Um, in fact, she mentions that um, God is constantly pursuing his people, even after they have sinned against him and failed to trust him. And I think that this idea of God pursuing his people, we, I hope that this is such a huge, um, just a huge concept that you grasp during this podcast episode of like, God is constantly trying to find a way to, to bridge the gap. He's constantly pursuing us always. And there will be times where we're like, why is God continuing to pursue these people after everything that they do, after all of the destruction that they've done, after all the choices that they've made, after all the times that they've pushed God aside, why does God continue to pursue his people? And it's just a beautiful, beautiful story. So I also love how Angie mentions that there's a difference between consequence and condemnation. Um, she goes on to say that this was their consequence, being kicked out of Eden, sin entering the world. This is the consequence of the choices that we've made. And um, 
And so we'll see that going forward, how this all plays out. But again, this was the first animal sacrifice. And she mentions this as a foreshadowing, right? So we know that blood is shed in animal sacrifices as a form of worship. We know that blood was shed when Jesus died as um, in our place. And so we see this really play out. So this was the very first sacrifice that was made in order to cover up and make up for a sin that was committed. So if that theme doesn't speak like so loudly right now to you and isn't crystal clear, I hope it becomes crystal clear later on in the um, podcast episode. So he makes them the clothing out of loincloth. It's innocent blood that's shed to cover up their mistakes. And um, at the very end, God makes a promise talking about in Genesis 3.15, he talks about um, basically in this verse, it says, I will put um, in uh, I will put between you and the woman um, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your heel and you shall bruise his heel. So here we see already a reference to a redemption plan. We see um, a clue to God is going to um, allow hardships between um, between man and woman between them and their children. And that's that's a hard thing to wrap our mind around is that God has has allowed certain things, uh, certain hardships to happen in our lives. But he also says that, um, that it's only temporary. Why is that? Because he is still, he's sending someone that will ultimately crush the enemy. Um, he shall bruise your heel and we'll find out where in scripture that plays out and you shall bruise his heel. So she's really talking about how Satan and the enemy's days are numbered. So yes, we will experience hardships and, um, and at times suffering in this life, but it is promised later on that someone will be coming and taking, uh, taking care of that. So at the very end of this particular chapter, she says that prepare to see the heart of God on every page of the Bible and his relentless pursuit of us. And that is one thing that we really see played out over and over is even though we try to hide behind our own fig leaves, right? We make all these choices, especially after God has told us, do not do this. And we do it anyways. Um, or maybe we don't even listen to what God has to say at all. Maybe we are like, oh, I'm good. I don't need God. He still is constantly pursuing us. And we see this theme come uh, come to light on how we we come to him, we cry out to him, we seek his mercy, and we stand on his truth and promises. And I really just, um, it really is amazing to see this played out um, throughout the scripture. So wrapping up this very first chapter that we talk about, what comes to your mind about God? And what is your Adam and Eve moment? So these are questions that I asked my life group at the time. Um, and one other important thing that I would really point out is sometimes when we read scripture, most of the time we're trying to put ourselves in the story where we're thinking, oh, this Bible verse, you know, applies to me and my life in this way. I don't think there's anything wrong with that per se, um, but I do think that we should take the time to realize what does this scripture say about God. So instead of us constantly saying, what does this have to do with me and my life and my hardships, instead take a moment to try to figure out what does this particular story say about who God is? And I can tell you that the general consensus from the group that night was the fact that God is so relentlessly pursuing us. Um, it's not something that we're entitled to. It's not something that we deserve. But yet 
at times when we screw up and we mess up and we try to hide behind the screw ups, God is constantly trying to find a way to, to make things right. Um, and we see that play out in the story that even though they went against what God had said, he's like, okay, how can we, he's already like on step three. Like, how can we make this better? How can we come up with a different plan on how to have a redemption plan? And God, from the beginning of time, already we see has that planned out that there are going to be hardships, but yet he is sending someone to come and to bruise uh, the enemy and the enemy will bruise his heel and we'll see that play out in scripture um, to come. So stay tuned because we're about to cover chapter three as we find Noah and we find the story of the flood. Okay, here we go. So we are on the next section here, and this is chapter three of the book Woven. Um, And this section, this chapter is covering the flood and its aftermath. So I'm sure most of you know the story about Noah and his family surviving on the ark um, and the flood. And so we're going to dive in that today. I have a ton of notes. This chapter is a little bit longer. So if you hear me uh, flipping through my pages, that's because I got all my notes in front of me because I really want to share just a lot of the good information that Angie points out in this section. So what happens? Basically, Adam and Eve, they are kicked out of the garden. God fully closed them and they are kicked out of the garden of Eden. Why is that? Well, because the garden of Eden um, is where they were with God and they were, they, they couldn't be around him anymore. They descended into the world. Um, and so Eden is no more basically. Um, so throughout Genesis, as you're going along, so Genesis doesn't stop there. So basically Genesis carries on and we find this family tree of the human race. Um, after they're, after they're kicked out of Eden, um, you kind of go through this long list of names. Um, and as you're reading over these list of names, it starts in chapter five of Genesis. Once you're reading through all of those names, um, you get down to the very bottom where we do talk about Noah. And this is one thing that it's kind of hard for us. Like the names are very different than what we're used to. There's a lot of um, ages that are listed with that. And it just kind of goes through this whole line of, of fa- family history. One thing you need to know about that is this is very typical of Jewish culture. It was very important to the Jewish people to remember your ancestry, to have a long family line, to basically show who's coming from where. So, um, so it starts off talking about with the the family tree of the human race. It starts off with Adam, and it goes through and it talks about how um, I mean they they literally go through this huge long list. You have Cain, you have Abel. One of the sons was murdered by his brother. Um, one other thing to note, if you didn't know this, and I completely forgot about this, but Adam and Eve did after their one son had died. Um, one of their sons was named Seth. And I completely forgot that Adam and Eve had another child, which we'll see as it goes through the long list, who, who were his sons, who were his daughters. So, um, these, these family histories are important. It's very easy to just quickly read over and glance through for sure. But one thing that Angie points out is as you are looking at the family tree, it tells you how much time has gone by. So when we look at this, 
We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of years have gone by after Adam and Eve. Because at the very bottom of chapter 5, verse 32, it says, uh, When Noah was 500 years old, he had Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Japheth, something like that. Now, the thing that you'll find in the Bible is that, yes, these people lived a very, very, very long time. Um, I know that's really hard to wrap our minds around. It's completely different than what we're used to. You may say, but do you really expect me to believe that um, a man who was five a year, 500 years old um, was able to have children? I don't know. I, all I can go off is what the Bible has said. So we find Noah, all this time has passed by, and Noah ends up having three children, which we'll cover uh, much later. But before we continue on, we find that that God mentions in chapter 6 of Genesis, he tells us the state of the world and how things are going in the world. So hundreds and hundreds of years have passed by and here we are with Noah and his family and his sons and we come to verse 5 in chapter 6 it says God saw that human evil was out of control so this is the message version but I love how it's put it was out of control people thought evil imagined evil 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 from morning to night and God was sorry that he had made the human race in the first place it broke his heart And what's crazy to me is I'm thinking, man, how bad could it have been? How bad could the situation of the world have been? And how evil could the world have been to get to this point, to break God's heart? Um, And at this time, at this time, God calls for a do-over, which says in the Bible, it says, God said, I'll get rid of my ruined creation Make a clean sweep, people, animals, snakes and bugs, birds, the works. I'm sorry I made them. And again, God decides to wipe out everything and start over. And I just think, like, how in the world, how in the world was it that bad? Like, people are doing so many evil things. How is it that bad that God's like, all right, we're just going to do a do-over? And then the question, I'm wondering if you're wondering the same thing, but as I've studied before in years past, I've thought, okay, like, wow, that's pretty bad. Like, I'm sure there were, it wasn't there some people that may have been innocent. Like, how in the world does God wipe everybody and everything just out of existence? Like, how, how can he do that? And that, that's kind of hard to wrap our brains around that this loving God wipes everything out. Um, except for Noah and his family. And we'll touch on that in just a second. But I love what Angie Smith says. She's like, she even approached, she, she says this, she says, in theory, I understand this approach, but what kind of God wipes out all of humanity? Sounds like the kind of father you would want, doesn't he? It's the kind of story that's made a lot of people question his goodness and his love. So she is siding with us here that like, yeah, like what, what kind of God does this? But I love exactly what she lists out in the book. And so I want to share this with you in case you had those same exact thoughts. And if you've had those thoughts before, it's okay. That is just important to dig in. So she says, but we've got to back up a little and remember a few things. Number one, we're not God. Okay. All we need to remember is that he is good and he is for us. She said, and I guess in this situation, he knew that the best way to start the redemption story over was to let the yarn unravel. 
She's like, let's not think we know better. Let's not get too cocky in our own abilities and intelligence. We can barely parallel park. (laughs) Amen to that. So her first thought is like, hey, like, I understand these thoughts that you're having, but number one, you're not God. Like, you, you don't know everything that is to come. You don't know what his plan was. You don't even know what the situation was like. So we have to trust that he is who he said he, he, who he says he is. He's loving and he knows what's best for us. Number two, her second point is God is good, but he is also just. And I think people forget about that. Like everybody just wants to focus on, you know, he's so good and he's so sweet and loving. And yes, he is all those things, but God is also just like, God is also like, Hey, this is what I've said. And you're not obeying what I've said. There are repercussions to that. And God is God does experience anger as well. And so she says that that these people, they weren't just being decently moral and forgetting to do their quiet times. It's not like they, you know, it's not like they were just, she says, committing minor traffic violations and bam, God wiped them out. No, she said they were being horrific. The kind of stuff you see on the news and gasp at, the kind of moral exceptions we make that tell us death wouldn't be a severe enough punishment for Um, She said, can you imagine every single person was as evil as humanly possible? She was like, some of the things that they may have been doing, may have been sacrifices, sexual immorality, all of these things that were going on. She said, but it's not just that a few of them were doing it. She said, it's, and it's not that they were just do, you know, doing a couple of these things, but she said, no, God said that humans were doing only these things, not some good things too mixed in with the bad. No, only these bad things all the time, every day, no matter what. And whether it physically, emotionally hurt someone, it didn't matter. It was just evil all over. It was out of control. And then the third point that she makes is God is love. God is love. She said he is entirely separate from us, meaning he doesn't think the way that we think. She said, here's the thing. God is not our problem. We are our problem. Our sin is our problem. Um, But she says later on in the story, it is going to get better. And it does. It does get better. So those three things, yes, it's very hard to wrap our minds around the fact that like, wow, how how could he do something like this? Um, But we're going to see how it all plays out. She said, we just need to understand we didn't get what we deserved. I love how my mom has told me before, like we're on the other side of the cross. Thank God that we weren't on the, uh, you know, on the before side because there's no way that we could have met just all of the expectations that were expected. Um, and thank God that Jesus was sent for our redemption plan. Um, so later on in the Bible, it says, the, she said, basically God's like, I'm sorry I made everybody. I want to do over. But the next verse, verse eight says, but Noah was different. God liked what he saw in Noah. And I've heard this question put before and, and I've heard this before. Instead of viewing and saying, why didn't God save everyone? Let's look and see why did God save Noah? What was it about Noah that, um, where he saved him and he decided, Hey, we're gonna, we're gonna see, um, where this goes with him. And, um, And the thing about Noah is we can also apply this to our own lives, okay? We can say, instead of looking and saying, wow, why didn't God save this? Or why did God allow this to happen? We can look and say, why did God redeem me? Why did God give me that second chance and that third chance and that fourth chance? So going right along, um, she mentions that, one second, Got a lot of notes here. 
So she mentions that Noah is the only good guy. Like he is like the only good guy left. He's got his, um, his three sons, which we'll talk about in just a minute. And God's like, Hey, um, I need you to build this ark. And he gives them the exact dimensions. Like it, this wasn't some like little small boat. Okay. God says in verse 14 through 16, he says, build yourself a ship from teakwood, make rooms in it, coat it with pitch inside and out, make it 450 feet long, 75 feet wide and 45 feet high, build a roof for it and put in a window 18 inches from the top, put in a door on the side of the ship and make three decks, lower, middle and upper. So God was very specific, like, Hey, do these things. Um, so going along if you, and this kind of reminds me, my mom went and saw the ARC Museum or the exhibit um, in Kentucky. And she mentioned that they, the way that they built this ship, they did it exactly the way to these exact dimensions that God gave um, Noah. And it is a massive, massive ship. Um, it's amazing how, how this was even done like this. So, um, and, and also, I just I saw this one verse backing it up, verses 11 through 12 in chapter 6, just to put the state of the world. So um, God mentions that Noah was a good man, a man of integrity in his community. Noah walked with God. But it says, as far as God was concerned, the earth had become a sewer. There was violence everywhere. God took one look and saw how bad it was. Everyone corrupt and corrupting. Life itself corrupt to the core. So that just the state of what the world is like, which is kind of terrifying because I feel like that's exactly where we are. So God gives Noah um, this time to make this ship, to make this ark. And one thing I did not know and this is, again, another thing that we do. We assume certain things in scripture, like for Adam and Eve. A lot of people assume, and you see in stories and pictures, a lot of people assume that the fruit that was from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the fruit that they think that Eve gave to Adam, they say, oh, it's an apple, right? Um, but it actually isn't. You can go look through the Bible and it says nothing about an apple. I mean, it could have been a papaya for crying out loud, but this is where we kind of add to scripture and we try to like come up with whatever we think it might be. There's another example of that here. We've always seen, uh, the animals, the pair of animals, two by two, you know, like two lions, two turtles, two kangaroos, like all these two animals, you know, walking up onto the ship. But actually it says that God told Noah to round up and bring aboard seven pairs each, so you have, you know, yes, you have your pairs of lions, but he asked him to bring seven pairs. And she said she'll explain it later on. But there was a lot of animals on this boat. Okay. And the thing about the number seven that you'll find throughout scripture is we find that this, the seven represents like perfection. Like it is the, like the earth was made in seven days. Um, you know, here we have the seven pairs of animals. Like this was the, this was the, um, the, the perfect number of the amount of animals that needed to come on board. So even the ones that were considered not clean. So in Jewish culture, you have, um, you have like pig and thing, things like that, that were just considered not clean. Even those animals were able to, um, come on board. So it rains a lot. It rains a lot for 40 days and 40 nights. Again, talking about numbers, 
the number 40 that you'll see in the Bible played out over and over, the number 40 is considered a sign of personal testing. Some examples of that is the flood. It rained for 40 days, 40 nights. Um, when we get to Exodus, the people, um, the Israelites, when they were leaving Egypt, before they went to the promised land, they uh, were wandering around the... Um, wandering around for 40 years when we get to the new testament jesus fasted and tempted he was tempted by the by satan for 40 days and then another colon in uh acts chapter 1 verse 3 uh there were 40 days after jesus's resurrection and ascension so if you didn't know that jesus did die he he rose from the dead and he was hanging out pretty much with everybody for 40 days before he goes and ascends into heaven so you'll see this throughout the scriptures as we're going, and um, and I'll try my best to point it out. But the number seven represents perfection, and then the number forty we see that um, this is a really a big time of of testing, uh, personal testing. And so we see that we see that for forty days and forty nights, that they are there together on this boat, him and his family, with all these animals. Um, that ship is rocking from side to side, right? Um, and I can only imagine, I mentioned this to my group, I can only imagine, you know, watching the flood waters rise. I can only imagine that Noah and his family saw some pretty traumatic things. Like, think about that. Like, the whole earth is flooded, okay? I'm sure that homes, they probably saw homes being flooded, people drowning. Like, I'm sure this was very traumatic for them. And... Um, I'm sure Noah very quickly, if he did not already know, really understood the magnitude and the power that God had. But I wonder if it was a humbling experience for him to think like, wow, like God has saved me and my family from this destruction. Why me? You know, thank God, but also why me? So one thing that I didn't know that you can also skim over very quickly when you are reading your Bible is, yes, it did rain for 40s and 40 nights, but then they had, I knew that they had to wait, you know, for the flood waters to, to recede and to, to die down, but I didn't know how long it took. So actually in chapter seven, verse 24 in the Bible, it says the flood waters took over 150 days, uh, that's about five months. <laughs> so not only were they on this boat for quite some time, then they had to be on there a little bit longer to let the floodwaters recede for another five months, which is just, that's crazy to me. It's just, uh, it's just nuts. Um, so God recedes the waters and, um, it mentions that in chapter eight, verse one, it talks about that God turned his attention to Noah and all the wild animals and farm animals with him on the ship. And God caused for the waters to recede, to go down. Um, it mentions in chapter eight, verse four through six ish, it says that on the 17th day of the seventh month. So here we have that number seven again. The ship landed on the Arat mountain range. Okay, so this ark, this boat, has landed on or near Mount Arat, which is in uh, modern-day Turkey. And if you actually go and look up in that area, archaeologists have found what they think. There's a picture of like a bird's eye view. They think that it is like the outline of um, some ark remains, which is pretty, pretty cool. 
So the first thing that they do as soon as they get off of this boat, I'm sure that they were just so excited to be off of that boat. Everybody's stretching, everybody's, you know, breathing in that fresh air. Uh, the very first thing that God, um, that Noah did was he um, did an act of worship. He built an altar to the Lord um, and, and had a sacrifice. And this is the first time that animals were sacrificed to seek atonement. Um, this is the first time that... Um, that, that it was used as a symbol of worship. And, um, so, and, and she even mentions, Angie mentions, this is why they needed seven pairs of these to help the repopulation scheme go a little more quickly. So, um, so I just think it's so awesome that, that the very first thing that, that Noah does as soon as he gets out of that boat, like, he's not like, Hey, let's go here. Let's go there. Let's do this. And like, no, he's going to worship God, fall to his knees and, and, um, just really take the time to worship him and say, thank you so much for, for saving me and my family. So one thing that we'll see a lot in the Bible is this idea of sacrifice, right? And, and, and we'll see the idea of human sacrifices that are made. And this is not made by, um, the people of God, like we'll see that there are people that, that God despises that, you know, the, the human sacrifice. Um, so we'll see other cultures who have done that in the Bible. God really speaks heavily about that. We also see animal sacrifices and wrapping our minds around that. And so Angie speaks about that. And then we ultimately see the sacrifice that Jesus made. So she mentions a couple of thoughts about animal sacrifice during this time period. She said the very first thing is animal sacrifices were modeled by God and required for, uh, by him. She said, so if you'll remember soon after God's, um, soon after the sin's curse following Adam and Eve, God made clothes for Adam and Eve from animal skins. Atonement was made, but it came at the cost of a life. An animal must be slain. Um, so that was the very first sacrifice that was done. It was made by God, um, for a sin that was committed. But then she says sacrifice was pleasing and acceptable, acceptable to God. It was, an, it was viewed as an honorable and good thing, um, to do. Um, and so it, in, in, she said, as far as it goes with her, she said, it, this idea really hits you hard later on in the new Testament, and she even mentioned, she's like, I don't even like the whole animal sacrifice thing. She's like, I have a hard time understanding it. She said, I probably would have tried to save all the animals. Um, she said, but I can't explain it perfectly. So I'll just say it's okay if it bothers you that you have a problem with this idea of animal sacrifice. But you've got to trust that God is good and that we are him again. Um, so those are just a couple of ideas that she talks about when it comes to animal sacrifice. But God allows them to come out. He tells them, Hey, you know, your job now is to bear fruit, reproduce, lavish life on the earth, live bountifully. Like here you are, um, here you are basically a redo. And, and so God makes a promise for them. Another, another covenant. He makes a covenant with them and it is the rainbow. God puts a rainbow in the sky and he says, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant, which means a promise between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. And so God makes this promise. Um, and that was the original 
meaning of the rainbow. Um, not gay pride, not, um, not the pride flag, like none of, none of that. All right. Not Lisa Frank. All right. The rainbow was supposed to be a sign of God's covenant of God's promise with his people that he would never flood the earth again. So from that point forward, it is Noah and his family's job to repopulate the earth. So Noah has three kids. He has Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Japheth, I can't remember how that was pronounced. Um, and they do start kind of moving all over um, after, um, after they land. They get land, and we'll talk about where it is exactly that they go. But um, one thing that she mentions is that, yeah, they had to repopulate the earth. Okay, so, um, yeah, I'll let you just think about that for just a second, because Noah and his family are the only ones there. So, um, so Japheth, Japheth says, uh, he moved north and northwest. He moved to what would be known as modern day Turkey. So he kind of went up in that area. Ham, um, went to the south and southwest into North Africa toward the territories that would become Egypt and Sudan. They also occupied the land of Canaan and would turn out to be the folks that we'll see the Israelites encounter uh, as they're coming into the promised land. Um, these people, she says, were not gentle or kind. Um, and then the very last one is Shem. So Shem, um, he goes into the Arabian Peninsula, which is where Abraham would eventually come from. And as you go throughout this line, uh, that, that family line that we talked about, Jesus comes from the family line of Shem. One thing that will totally help you as you're studying the Bible, if you have in your Bible, uh, they do have biblical maps that can lay out for you kind of like uh, where, what the, what the biblical lands looked like at the time. Um, and, and that really helps kind of put in perspective for you um, all of this information. But why are we mentioning this? Why, are, why am I mentioning to you the different areas that they went to? Why am I mentioning to you their names? Because this plays a huge part throughout the Old Testament. We see people uh, fighting one another. We see people overtaking land. We see people at war. We see all these things happen. And what's so important to know is that we can, we can trace these people all the way back to Noah's three kids, to Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Japheth. Um, so we'll see all of this play out. One other note that we, about Shem, Jesus's line, it says Shem's name is in the ethnic word, um, Semitic. She's like, you've probably heard this often when we talk about anti-Semitic. It's referring to those who are racially biased against Jesus. Um, and I'm not against Jesus. I'm sorry, against Jews. So when you see that word Semitic, you were talking about the Jewish people, um, and this is just a really cool reminder that um, that word comes from Shem, which Shem is found in the Bible. So it, she's just reiterating, like, the Bible is real, folks. Like, the Bible really, really happened. So moving right along. So they go. They had to procreate. And yes, and go ahead and try to stomach this. They did have to procreate with each other. Um, they had to get that world repopulated. Do I see that as, um, uh, do I say, that, do I think that's a good thing to repopulate with your kinfolk? No, I don't. <laughs> Not at all. Um, do I understand that? Somebody had to do it. Um, I'm glad, again, I'm glad that I am, didn't have to do that part. So, moving right along. 
I told you guys that this this chapter would really just be about the flood and Noah, but she ends this chapter and I'll end this podcast episode with this these last two stories. Um, and it is with the book of Job. Now you may be thinking, uh, Job is not after Genesis. It's Genesis, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, blah, 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 blah. Well, one thing, in case you didn't know this, the, the way that the Bible is written, it's actually written out of order, meaning historically the book of Job should actually technically come after Genesis. The way that it was laid out was they had, um, they had certain books written and basically the, however long that they were, they put them in that order and then they put, um, they put the book of the prophets there as well. So it's, it's, it's basically organized in a certain order, but historically, historically speaking, the book of Job would actually be coming around this time. So the book of Job actually should come after Genesis. Um, they figured this out just based off of the, the, the language that they, that was used to write, write Job. Um, and this would be around the time of the flood. Um, so Job, uh, the thing about Job is that this is known uh, just about the immense suffering that he went through and, and just how he relied on God during that time. Um, so just a couple pointers. She says that God, in fact, is the one who pointed out Job as an example of the kind of person most likely to get underneath Satan's skin. And so if you don't know the story, basically Satan's like, hey, you know, like, uh, I bet, I bet Job wouldn't worship you, you know, if you put him, if, if I just test him, you know, if I just, if I just kind of take some things away from him. And she even says, she says, for reasons we won't understand, she said, God agreed, you know, God allowed that suffering to happen. And so Satan began stripping Job one, one thing at a time, like taking away his land, his family, his, his, um, his, his cattle, all the things that he had, he took away and caused it as a loss, um, and almost nearly killed, uh, killed him. And why would God allow such a thing to happen? And, and, and she mentions, I understand that this is hard for us to understand and that it's cruel and unnecessary. She's like, but I believe God is good. Even when I don't understand everything that he's doing. She said, we, we have to decide either he loves me or he doesn't either. He is good or he is not. These are things that we have to really come to that, that our belief in God and our faith in God is not based on emotion. It's not based on shallow hope. She says, but we have to choose to say, I believe God does love me and I believe God is good. And this is exactly what happens. Um, Job remains faithful, remains faithful to God. He stayed faithful through it all. She said, this does not mean, however, it doesn't mean that he never grieved or questioned. I love this quote. She says, faithfulness is not the ability to push our, our feelings and our doubts aside and pretend we're totally okay with whatever is happening. Um, she said, but he chose to be faithful. She ends talking about Job saying, if anyone ever tells you that you can't question God or be angry with him, they don't know the many passages in scripture that disagree. We can't love God the way he loves us to love him if we remain in the pit of doubt and anger. But this doesn't mean we have to shut off our humanity in order to be faithful. She says, instead, bring it all to him. 
She assures us of two things. He already knows how you feel and he wants you to bring it to him. He isn't intimidated by your questions and isn't angered by your doubt. He loves you. And this is one thing that I kind of had to come to grips with is the fact that like we're going to have questions. We're going to have doubts. We're going to have all of these things that we have in in regards to God's word, in regards to what he says. But that does not mean that we don't take it to him and that we just completely shut him off. Like he says, hey, I can handle it. <laughs> I can handle all your questions. I can handle everything that you that you have, all of your emotions. He made us. So bring it to me. Um, and that is one thing that made my faith grow and grow and grow was like, hey, I have all these questions about your scripture. What does this mean? What does this mean? All right, now let's dig deep. And through that, I was able to grow. So Job, even though it is much further along in the Old Testament, it does follow along the time frame, right around this time frame. So that is why she touches on it at this point. Okay, wrapping up this episode. Yes, I know it's long. Thank you for still hanging on with me. She ends this chapter talking about the Tower of Babel. So the Tower of Babel, um, if you know anything along uh, along the storyline, let me get there, let me turn there. The Tower of Babel is still found in Genesis, so we're not completely done with Genesis here, but the Tower of Babel is found in chapter 11 of Genesis, and what's crazy here is we find that it doesn't take long before people are already trying to um, make themselves their own gods again. Like they're already screwing up all over again after God has said, hey, come and, and we have a new population of people and it's a new start over. And once again, we find ourselves in doing evil. Um, and this right here, guys, is a common thread and a common theme throughout the scripture every time. So... It says right here, verse 1 of chapter 11, it says, At one time the whole earth spoke the same language. It so happened that as they moved out of the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled down. They said to one another, Come, let's make bricks and fire them well. They used brick for stone and tar for mortar. And here we find it. They said, Come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower that reaches heaven. Let's make ourselves famous so we won't be scattered here and there across the earth. So automatically we see that they they are trying, it's all about them, everything that they need. Okay. Um, and we find here, that they're once again trying to become their own gods. She, Angie mentions, you would think that after God wiped out the entire world, the new folks would want to tiptoe around everything or anything that might get them in trouble with a God powerful enough to cause a flood, but humility didn't last long. So at that time, God says, all right, we can't have them we can't have them basically becoming their own gods here. This is not good. Um, so God says in chapter 11, verse 7, he says, Come, we'll go down and garble their speech so they won't understand each other. Notice that word, come, let us, we will go down. Okay, so who is God talking about? Well, that right there is proof that, that you have the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit right there in the beginning of time. Um, and so... Verse 9 says, and that's how it came to be called Babel, because their God turned their language into Babel. So from that point forward, those people 
people didn't all speak the same language anymore. So that's where we get the word Babel from. We get it from the Tower of Babel. From that point forward, it says God scattered them all over the world. So they didn't get their tower. They didn't get to create and make themselves famous. And they didn't get get to become their own gods. So that is basically the end of Genesis. Well, not quite. That's just one section of Genesis. Excuse me, we got a lot longer to go. In fact, on our next podcast episode, we will be uh, talking more about some people that we'll meet that are very, very important to the Christian faith. So before we wrap this podcast episode up, I want you to think about when have you been angry or upset with God and how did you react to him? Did you take it to him so that he could say, hey, I can handle your anger, I can handle your emotions? Or did you choose to uh, basically retract back and, and try to become your own God, try to handle it yourself? Um, and then lastly, what can we say what can we say about um, what this scripture says about our God? Remember we talked in our last segment just about how sometimes in scripture we try to place ourselves and say, okay, what does this say about me? But instead, can you look at these stories and figure out, you know, what does this scripture say about God? Who does it say that he is for me? Um, I definitely see him as this, he is this powerful God. Like we have that personal component to him, you know, like he, he wants to love us and he wants to be there with us and have that personal relationship. But God also is like Angie mentioned, just, and he fully expects that when he says, do this, that we do it or don't do that. We don't do it. If you're a parent or a teacher or someone who works with children, you understand that that when you tell that child, don't do this or do do this, that's what you expect. Um, I've, I've had this issue with, um, with one of my kids lately is, and I tell my kids that this at school, you know, we do things right away, all the way and with a happy heart. And that's my model for them. That's how I want them to do what I say. Is it done that way all the time? No, not at all. Um, And, and, but as parents, we fully expect, Hey, you're going to listen to what I say and you're going to do what I say. And then when they don't, there's repercussions and there's consequences for that, but there's still that loving nature when there are consequences and when there are repercussions. So yes, I think that, I think it's important to see God as like, yeah, he's this loving heavenly father, but also there is a side to him that does become angry, that does come become disappointed and that does want us to obey. And I think I just had this discussion with my husband today. I think there's so many people who, and I have been in this boat as well, who are like, I don't believe in God or I don't want anything to do with God because there is that component of obedience. People don't want to do what someone else tells them to do. People, it's in our nature if, if God says, Hey, don't do this, you know, don't do this in your life. It's not good for you. We're like, I can do whatever I want. I'm a grown up. I can, I make, I can make whatever decisions I want for my life. They don't want someone telling them what to do and what not to do. And so instead they choose to say, okay, well, I'm just not going to believe in God. Well, just because you don't obey. And just because you say, I'm not going to believe in God does not deny the fact that he is existent. He is there. Um, you're just choosing to not follow him because you want to live your own life. You want to, you want to become your own God. Um, 
And so I know that people struggle with that for sure. And, and God understands that and God sees that. But there are repercussions and consequences for that. And we see this played out in scripture and we'll continue to see this being played out in scripture. So I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast episode. Again, please make sure that you go dive into the scripture to fact check me, to go and and just make sure that everything I'm saying and the notes that I'm giving you from Angie Smith and from the book are really the real thing. If there's something really cool that you you learned from the segment, I hope that you will share it with someone. But if you have any questions about today's readings, that particular reading was, we basically covered Genesis chapter one all the way to chapter 11. 11. So when we come back for our next podcast episode, we will be introduced to Abraham and Sarah. He is one of the main guys for the Christian faith. So we will definitely cover him. So we'll cover the fourth chapter, which is called Covenant with Abraham and the fifth chapter, which is uh, Age of the Patriarchs. So we will see there everyone that follows Abraham and just the, um, the amazing people that come to follow. It's a lot of information. So take it slowly if you need to take your notes, re-listen, or share with a friend. But as always, guys, continue to be raw, be authentic, and be you. And I'll be seeing you for our next Woven Series episode.